Warning. This episode is rather geeky. If you don't want to hear geeky things about how the BBC fought for survival in April 1923, look elsewhere. Go on. Still here? Then proceed, and enjoy, if you dare. Previously on the British Broadcasting Century Podcast. It's mid-April 1923, and John Reith's BBC is losing money left, right and centre. The licence fee isn't bringing in nearly enough dough, thanks to most people building their own radio sets. But Mr Reith's pleas to the government are falling on deaf ears. A one-pound constructor's licence? Never, says the Postmaster General. But the five-month-old BBC has another opponent, the press. Particularly the ex-press, eagerly campaigning against the BBC and offering to broadcast express radio themselves. With enemies in the government and the press, the BBC may not make it to six months, let alone a year or a century. This time, April the 16th to the 24th, 1923, with Reith and Postmaster General William Joynson Hicks at stalemate, we are heading for a debate or two in the House of Commons. So it's the return of our podcast parliamentary players, bringing the Commons chamber back to life, as we dramatise the works of Hansard, the precise words of the parliamentary record, re-performed a century later in dramatic fashion. Plus, what else was on the air a hundred and a bit years ago? Well, late April 1923, the first Sport and British summertime. Hear, hear. Yesteryear in Parliament. Well, you can hear, hear. It's the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello. This is Paul Carenza calling. This is London calling. Hello, hello. And by the way, I just looked up hello as opposed to hello because you do find those early broadcasters said Hello, with a U. They even wrote columns in the wireless press, spelling it that way. So what's the deal with the U in hello rather than the E in hello? Well, would you like to know? I'll tell you anyway. Turns out, British hello, American hello. And the American hello really came in thanks to another communication device in the 1880s, the telephone. Apparently, that greeting was coined by Edison. He won out against Alexander Graham Bell's preference of a phone greeting of ahoy. Wouldn't you love to hear more phone calls that started, ahoy? That would put off a few telesales callers. So anyway, in the US, it was hello via Edison and the telephone. But in Britain, we were still hulloing with a U until the mid-1920s, so just after broadcasting kicks in. So that's why it's all hello, hello to begin with. Then the new telephone directories came in and they would encourage users to say their name on answering the phone, not just hello, but, you know, Hi, it's Paul Carenza here. Hello, it's Paul Carenza here, by the way. So there you go. You heard it here first or last. Mid-1920s, the British hello is replaced by the Americanized hello. I don't know about hello with an A. That's another story. Oddly, then, that's about the same time as the American word radio replaced the British word wireless. So in summary, think of the British hello like the British wireless. We said goodbye to both when the Americans sent us their words radio and hello all around the mid-1920s. Or, in even greater summary, hello, I'm Paul Carenza. Welcome to the British Broadcasting Century, the podcast that takes the deepest dive imaginable into the century-old origins of the BBC, radio, and life as we know it. 
If you've just joined us, stick around. We'll catch you up, no problem. You don't need to go back right to the start 70 episodes ago, but they're there when you'd like to listen to them. Do browse at your leisure. Now, our bit-by-bit tale of British Broadcasting's backstory has reached a wobbly period for our dear heroine, Auntie Beeb. It's a company that's got a fewer than 100 employees and lots of enemies on the outside. This episode spans just a week or so in mid-April of 1923. See, that's where we got to at the end of the last episode. Reith was taking on the Postmaster General on the one hand and the Express newspaper on the other. They're at stalemate with a licence fee agreement. Sounds like it could be the present day, doesn't it? So John Reith thought that it was about time that he defended his position publicly. He's had the weekend to think about it. The Postmaster General has threatened to release tens of thousands of broadcast licence applications with no gain for the BBC at all. They'll just be freely given to those people who wanted them. Monday 16th of April 1923. Reith presents a report to the BBC Board of Directors, who you may remember months earlier had said to Reith, we're leaving it all to you. They trust him completely, because at this point, really, very few people know what broadcasting is all about. And once we get to the House of Commons, you will see many MPs don't know what broadcasting is all about. I wonder if they do today. Reith told his Board of Directors that he was standing up to the Postmaster General, William Joynson Hicks, a.k.a. Jix for short. And Reith wrote to Jix that very day. You couldn't have the Postmaster General just freely releasing licences into the wild. Your proposals are, in the company's opinion, repugnant to the basis and the whole spirit of the agreement, and the company cannot accept them. Reith firmly reminded this cabinet minister that it was all agreed by not one but two of his predecessors that the summer of 1922 was spent working out how to avoid the American-style chaos. One broadcasting company, Reith stated, was seen as the only sensible way. So why is he suddenly mentioning this? Well, remember, the Daily Express and the Daily Mail were actually applying to broadcast themselves. So Reith's defence is his way of saying to the government, look, don't give broadcasting to the press or anyone else. Trust us. Like Highlander, there can be only one. And that one is Reith's BBC. Now, in fact, I read that Reith's letters to the Postmaster General here were signed by Reith, but largely written by Chief Engineer Peter Eckersley, that wild first regular British broadcaster that we had on the very first episodes of this podcast. Now, if I'm honest, I can't quite remember where I read that Eckersley wrote these letters, but somewhere. So this wouldn't hold water in an academic thesis, but it's a podcast, so there's room for half-remembered hearsay, I'm pretty sure. That's what happens when you're the researcher, the host, the editor, and the exec, all in one. I could tell you that Mr Blobby wrote those letters if I wanted to, but he didn't. It was Peter Eckersley and or John Reith. Either way, same day, in fact, as Eckersley slash Reith was writing to the Postmaster General, Eckersley was on the radio himself, which was a rarity. He's chief engineer. He's behind the scenes. But you can't hold Peter Eckersley down. He wants to seize that microphone and speak to listeners. Now, here on London 2LO at this point, Eckersley was announcing a period of testing because you couldn't test privately. And he was back on his freewheeling, hilarious form from 2MT Riddle Days. See earlier episodes for that. So he was on air apologising for keeping the audience up late and telling listeners that actually the concert they just heard was a secret test, a simultaneous broadcast. Listeners were hearing music as usual, but in the London area, they were hearing a concert that surprise was actually from Birmingham. Or another night, surprise, that was actually Glasgow 5SC. He was fooling the listeners by not telling them until afterwards where they were transmitting from via landline and then out onto the airwaves. It sounded pretty poor quality at first, but it got better the more they tried, which is why they tried. And Eckersley always tried with grace and humour. 
Now, these were private on-air tests made necessarily public. You could say the same thing was happening the very next day when it came to the BBC position with the licence problem, a private issue that had to be made public. Till now, Reith had kept his cards close to his chest, but the Postmaster General had been rather free with his opinions and giving them to the press. So now, Tuesday, 17th of April, the BBC went public with where it stood. And to do this, they invited the press literally into where the BBC stood, into its new HQ of Savoy Hill. The studios weren't open yet, but the offices were. This was a chance for transparency. Let the people decide, thought the BBC board. So there was Reith, and there was Godfrey Isaacs of the Marconi Company, and there was Mr Peace of the Western Electric Company. And these are all directors of the BBC on the board. And they met the press. Between them, these trio gave a manifesto, a mission statement, defending the BBC against the Daily Express anti-BBC sentiment. There was a Q&A. They went over the entire previous year, how they got to this point, from the May 1922 invitation by the Postmaster General then to wireless companies to form this BBC, to the ban on vast profits and advertising. And it was explained that the experimenters' licence had come from back then, when genuine experimenters wanted to keep on using radio to experiment. Godfrey Isaacs of the Marconi Company explained that with the wireless boom, the press had started telling people how to make their own radio sets, and so people did. He was blaming them for this problem in a way. Widespread license evasion had followed, although not deliberately. You just couldn't get a license, really, if you were making your own set at home. This meant no money to fund the programmes. The government position would damage British manufacturers and wreck the BBC funding model. There was no immediate solution, but the public now knew where broadcaster and state stood, and they could see the chasm between them. Amateur Wireless thought the BBC's press event rather good, that Reith was standing up for what was needed, ready to bring us the best wireless programme in the world, as they said. Popular Wireless magazine was less impressed by Reith, thinking him too paternalistic at the event, too controlling and tending to blow the BBC trumpet too loudly. Too much of what they described as the naughty public doesn't know what's good for them attitude came from Reith, they thought. But the BBC was the best we had, said Popular Wireless. Winding down the BBC, giving broadcasting to the press would be a mistake, and they too saw the Daily Express attitude as destructive with its own agenda. Wednesday, 18th of April, 1923. So the day after John Reith's Savoy Hill press conference was the day before Postmaster General Joynson Hicks was due to give a statement in the Commons on the whole thing. And so there was a last-ditch attempt to bridge government and broadcaster. But this ended in, well, should we call it deadlock? What say you, Mr Reith? It is not quite correct to say that a deadlock has been reached. It is better to say that no solution has been arrived at. But a solution was demanded from Wireless Weekly that day. Something must be done at once. The licence position is a great deal more acute than the great majority of those in authority know. There are at least 200,000 would-be experimenters furious at the present state of affairs. Certain sections of the press, in their endeavour to expedite matters, only make them worse. Recently, an influential daily paper went so far as to suggest scrapping the British Broadcasting Company altogether. To talk of disbanding the BBC is, of course, sheer rubbish. Bear in mind, the initials BBC only came into existence in the press the week before. But would those initials be used at all within a few weeks? It was almost like the company was on its last days already. As Reith saw it, if the Postmaster General just gave away all these experimental licences, which he threatens to do, it will cause a lot of unemployment in the wireless industry. And perhaps the downfall of Auntie Beebe.
Thursday the 19th of April 1923. The next day, as the Express summarised the situation under their headline, Vain Fight for Monopoly, all eyes were on the House of Commons. Joynton Hicks was to give a statement to the House, and thanks to the Hansard Parliamentary Record and our newly reformed podcast Parliamentary Players, we can bring you almost the entire debate brought back to life a hundred years later. Before the longish speeches, there was one rather brief, terse question, a written question, that is, from Mr Ammon MP. It's not Mr G Ammon, but Mr Charles Ammon, the member for Camberwell North. I asked the Postmaster General, in view of the inadequacy of the programme supplied by the British Broadcasting Company, whether he is taking any steps to revise or cancel the agreement with the company under paragraph 27, subsection 1 of the Wireless Broadcasting Licence. Sir William Joynson-Hicks replied, I'm not aware that the programmes supplied by the British Broadcasting Company are generally regarded as inadequate. Quite right too, how can you call it inadequate? That very night on London 2LO, let's look at the listings, you could hear a talk on Electric Lamps New and Old by Professor J.T. McGregor Morris of the East London College. Yes, he could have chosen to just do it on old electric lamps, but he chose it to do on electric lamps new and old. Now, if that's not a forward-looking, youth-focused BBC, I'm a Dutchman. Absolutely. Still, good of the Postmaster General in the House of Commons there to stand up for the BBC, saying, no, it is not inadequate, even though at that time he was having this rift with wreath. Later that evening, then, the Postmaster General returned to the floor with a statement and a plan. But first in the Commons, an introductory question at length from, well, I'll let Mr Speaker introduce. Lieutenant Colonel Moore Brabazon. I wish to raise tonight the question of wireless broadcasting. There are two forms of licence issued today. One is to the experimenter and the other to what is called the broadcast licensee. He is a man who is not meant to know anything about wireless, but buys an instrument and turns it on to receive the broadcasting from London. The other man, the experimenter, is given a license to use whatever apparatus he likes, the chief advantage of which is the employment of what is called reaction. I must speak of reaction in this connection, but I hope the Postmaster General will not think that I am in any way personal. It may be described as a sort of boosting of a very feeble incoming current, rather like the Attorney General in that respect. It should be understood that if reaction is employed by someone who does not understand his apparatus, the receiving instrument becomes a generating station, and the moment it does so, it upsets everybody else in the locality trying to listen in. The Postmaster General is faced with this position, that there are many people in the country who can and do make their own sets. It's a very easy thing to do. A crystal and a hairpin are about all you require. Owing to the regulations, the people who have made these sets have been forced into the position of breaking the law. Because, first of all, they are not allowed to get an experimenter's license, nor are they doing right in using the receiving set they have themselves made, in that it does not conform to the broadcasting standard. Consequently, the position is that many people who do not want to break the law have been forced to do so. The Postmaster General and the Broadcasting Company are having a dispute as to what shall be done with these people. And I see in the papers that the Postmaster General threatens to issue to everybody who makes his own crystal set an experimenter's license. I hope before he does so, he will consider what he is doing. Because if today we are to have a 100,000 people with reaction, abusing it as they would, because many of them are inexperienced, I cannot imagine what chaos is going to take place in the ether. Already it is clumsy enough in the hands of experienced people. 
but if it is going to be given to all inexperienced people, the whole of broadcasting will fall to the ground and fail. The Postmaster General, Sir William Joynson Hicks. In a very few minutes, I shall try to explain the dispute which has arisen in this matter, and I'm obliged to my honourable and gallant friend for having given me the opportunity. The position is, as he stated, that there are at present two licences, and two only, which the Postmaster General can issue. That is under the agreement made by my predecessor, Mr. Calloway, and signed on the 18th of January, 1923, with the company known as the British Broadcasting Company, that they should have a licence of broadcasting throughout the country. I should here put in a caveat by saying that I'm not at all certain that agreement with the company gives them a monopoly licence for broadcasting. I'm not at all sure whether it is not open to myself to grant a licence, if I so desire, to somebody else. Now, I mentioned that as a warning at the moment, but under the agreement which is made by my predecessor, Mr. Calloway, I can only grant a broadcasting licence with the proviso that for receiving broadcasting, a particular form of instrument marked BBC by the British Broadcasting Company must be used. It is open to me to grant an experimental licence in regard to which there is no condition. I'm not sure whether the House, if they realised fully what is being done, would consider that it was in accordance with public policy that we should collect what are, in effect, compulsory taxes for the purpose of giving half of them to the broadcasting companies. Sir William Ball. It was the government's suggestion. The Postmaster General, Joynson Hicks, continued, but with a different voice, because we had lots of people offered to do voices here on the podcast, and I didn't want to lumber one person with too many words to read. Sir William Joynson Hicks. It was the result of numerous negotiations between the broadcasting company and the then Postmaster General. The agreement, of course, is binding upon myself. That is clear. And I cannot issue any other license at all to enable the home constructor, who is not an experimenter, to construct his machine without the assent of the broadcasting company. Negotiations have taken place between them and myself, and at first they offered to allow me to issue a license to what I may call the home constructor, if I would make the license fee 20 shillings and give them 15 shillings out of that. That I declined at once. I said I was willing to grant this license at a fee of 10 shillings, of which half would go to the company, provided only that the parts to be used by the holder of the license should be made in this country. There are today awaiting issue 33,000 applicants for experimental licenses. Those have been held up first by the action of my predecessor, since January last, and by myself, because of the opposition, I can quite understand the legitimate opposition, of the British Broadcasting Company. I have, therefore, taken the opinion of the law officers of the Crown on this matter, and they have advised me today that before I can issue an experimental license, I must be satisfied that the object of the experimental license holder is an experiment with wireless telegraphy. But, if I am so satisfied, I not only can issue a license, but I am bound to do so. I have no option in the matter. That being the case, I propose to send these 33,000 applications to some experts on my staff tomorrow morning, and require them to make a thorough investigation, and to advise which, in their opinion, are honestly experimental. They will be submitted to me, and an experimental licence will be issued. So this would be a relief to Reith then. The new news was that the Postmaster General had been advised not to just release licences to these applicants like he had threatened to. Instead, he was having his team check which of these applicants was a proper experimenter first before just releasing them. There was to be no licence giveaway. The Postmaster General continued there in the House of Commons in a third voice due to the availability of voice actors in 2023. With regard to the other side of the question, I am exceedingly sorry that there should be this dispute between the Postmaster General and the Broadcasting Company, but I am prepared to make one further effort at least 
because there are, in my view, an enormous number of people, probably nearly half a million, who are prepared to take licenses if they can get the license they want. The British broadcasting people tell my staff that there are two hundred thousand infringers at the present time working with no license because they cannot get the license they want. I want to give them a license and charge them ten shillings and give five shillings to the broadcasting company. I therefore propose at once to institute the strongest committee I can get in order to consider the whole question of broadcasting, not merely the question of license, but the desirability of existing contracts and the questions that have arisen on contracts, if I can get members to serve. I propose that there shall be three or four members of this house and two or three members of my expert staff, and I propose also to ask the Radio Society of Great Britain, the great scientific body dealing with wireless, and I think it only fair to ask the British Broadcasting Company themselves to suggest someone to me to go on that committee. I hope they will accept that offer. I hope they will be willing to put the whole of their case before the committee, which will be as fully representative and as strong as I can make it, and I hope that by that means we shall be able to solve one of the most difficult problems that has ever come before me. I can assure the House I have devoted days and almost nights to try to find a solution, fair on the one side, and without inflicting what I do not want to inflict, a real monopoly against the would-be manufacturers in this country. So the Postmaster General has just announced the very first BBC inquiry. This will be the Sykes Inquiry. More on that later. It's an olive branch to the Beeb. It's not my way or the highway, as it could have been with the Postmaster General. Instead, it's saying, let's let others look at the roadmap and see if there's a way ahead. For now, though, the MPs are still in this debate trying to get their heads around this BBC malarkey. Some of them have not been paying attention for the past year. Ramsay MacDonald. The House must have been somewhat amazed at the statement to which we have just listened. That such a contract should exist. That such commitments should have been made and that such an absolute deadlock should have been created. I welcome very heartily the statement of the Right Honourable Gentleman, because it does show that the present Postmaster General is more alive to the situation than the predecessor that effected this agreement. Surely, however, this subject is one that ought to be far more thoroughly discussed in this House. I agree to the suggestion about the committee, but that is not enough. This House ought to have the matter brought before it at the very earliest opportunity, so that the whole thing may be thoroughly thrashed out. Sir William Ball. 
and I hope the House will suspend its judgment until it has heard the case of the British Broadcasting Company. We shall hear it indeed in time. Sir William Bull there, the only director of the BBC who was also a Member of Parliament. Handy for leaping to their defence in a moment like this. We will return to the Commons shortly, but at that point it was nearing half past eleven at night and time for bed. Of course, the sad thing about an evening debate is all those MPs missed Professor J.T. McGregor Morris and his talk on electric lamps new and old on London Tour. So there's an inquiry on the way, even if one outcome from this inquiry may be the BBC could be abolished if its amusement services were discovered to be interfering with wireless communications of importance. It was just like the pre-BBC days of 2MT Riddle and Chelmsford, where the legitimate services of wireless trumped anything that broadcasting had to offer. Once again, it was the broadcasters versus the powers that be. If there were to be no BBC, of course, then thousands of listeners in in this country would have to scrap their receiving sets, cried the Daily Herald the next day. Friday 20th of April was arguably a notable day on the BBC. Apparently the first sports talk on the Football Cup tie. That's the FA Cup to you and me. Although some wrongly call this the first sports commentary, uh, you could say that was the year before when Arthur Burroughs relayed the boxing championship on the pre-BBC London 2.0. That was knockout in under a minute on the very night that 2.0 launched. Now this first sports talk on the BBC was a talk rather than a commentary. It was from West Ham manager Sid King on their chances against Bolton Wanderers in the FA Cup final eight days later. That was actually to be the first match played at Wembley. Sid King reckoned that the size and the quality of the Wembley pitch would suit his side's fast wing play and passing style. Didn't work out, though. Bolton beat them 2-0. Some say because 200,000 fans trampled the turf just before the match, so eager they were to get into the new Wembley Stadium. Either way, though, Sid King gave that first sports talk on the BBC on April the 20th, 1923. Except... He wasn't the first. Because I've had a quick look on the BBC programme index. And on Monday, the 2nd of April, 18 days earlier, at 9.15 in the evening, Cardiff 5WA had a 10-minute chat on sport of the day by W.C. Clissett of the Evening Express. Don't know what sport. Probably rugby. We're talking about Cardiff here. But once again, the London centricity of the records does down the other regions, who again got there first. Anyway, the same day as London's first sports talk with Sid King and the West Ham chances in the FA Cup, that day there was trickiness at head office as the gramophone companies said that all artists under contract with them would be banned from broadcasting on the Beeb. Just like the theatre companies had tried before them, they were unhappy at either being underpaid or unpaid. Yep, the BBC did not need another enemy, but they were finding one in the gramophone companies. But with insufficient income from the government, how could the Beeb keep paying artists at their going rate? How could they pay anybody? They were running out of cash. So, also that day, April the 20th, Savoy Hill, Reith and Eckersley, uh, they're mulling over the Postmaster General's speech at the Commons the day before. They were unimpressed. Because the Postmaster General said that he'd have his experts determine which applicants for experimenters' licences were genuine experimenters. But which experts? 
Rita Neckersley weren't sure what the Postmaster General's staff would be looking for in these applications. How are they going to protect this very delicate license system? So John Reith issued a statement from the Beeb appealing to every fair-minded person in the land. The post office wished broadcasting to be undertaken by manufacturers in general. There has never been any thought or attempt to protect one British manufacturer against another, and nothing in the agreement justifies the suggestion. Reith went on to say in this public statement that the BBC should not be categorised a monopoly because several manufacturers had come together to form it. Any British manufacturer could join. The whole object of the introduction of the BBC mark on radio sets was to make broadcasting possible and to protect all British manufacturers equally against dumping of foreign sets manufactured by Labour paid at a rate of about one-fifteenth part what British Labour is paid, with which British manufacturers could not compete. It's regrettable that the public should not have before them a statement to enable them to appreciate the reasons which induced Mr Neville Chamberlain, the Postmaster General before, to enter into the agreement with the broadcasting company what were really the objects and benefits of the agreement. There would have been no broadcasting without that agreement. Under it, broadcasting has made amazing progress. And if the agreement were capable of being destroyed, the broadcasting wireless industry and broadcasting must be destroyed with it. Yes, tear up the agreement. You tear up the BBC. So said Reith, written by Eckersley. Next day, Eckersley was back on the air. Saturday, 21st of April, 1923. Oh, it was all smiles and jollity from Eckersley there. Forget the Beeb's off-air woes. Eckersley was back on his wild 2MT form. Only now... I am now chief engineer of the BBC. Engineer en chef. That's French. So he said on the air. We know what he said because Andrew Barker, our newspaper detective, has found the words of his talk, reprinted in popular wireless magazines. So shall we recreate a minute or two of Eckersley, live on London to a low with a message for the listeners. To those old Ritlites who are now listening to me, I bow to them. I bow from the depths of my microphone. Now then, stop that howling. Stop it. I say, I can see I shall have to teach you a bit about that. Now, I've come to the conclusion that heterodyning is due to three classes of people who use sets with adjustable reaction. First, there is the ignorant, second, the careless, and thirdly, the malicious. Oh, malicious. The ignorant are, I think, in the majority. Please remember, it might be you. I don't mean to say that you are ignorant. I don't know how to milk a cow or to fill up an income tax form because I haven't got a lot of money. But I do know a huge lot about wireless. And perhaps I can help you if you care to learn. Now, what's that silly ass talking about, you'll say? Well, it's about oscillating, howling, heterodyning, or whatever you like to call it. I won't say what I call it. And it's simply caused by maladjustment. Remember, it might be you. You wouldn't, I know. You've got such a nice, strong face. But just let me explain how you can tell if your set is oscillating. You know there is a handle on your set, which, if you turn it, makes the sounds get louder and louder until finally you get this. Oh, yes, if you get that, your set is oscillating. Stop it. As regards the careless ones, I have a little story to tell them. There was once a very shy man who went to a dinner party. He'd already got through a good dinner when the cherry tart came along, and this was exceedingly good. Now, the difficulty was how to put out the stones. Some just spat them out, some took them out on their spoons, while others sort of blew them into their hands. This man, however, didn't like to do either of these, so he kept them in the side of his mouth. Now, as I said, the tart was an exceedingly fine one, and our friend simply had to have another helping. After this, he had two cheekfuls. 
But still, the tart was so fine he had a third helping. Then he was seized with a sneeze. It's difficult, seized with a sneeze. Well, he snows, and later they were carrying out all his friends with his shrapnel wounds. Needless to say, he was never invited out again. You see, it's one of those difficult situations, like when somebody drops their false teeth and you simply have to laugh. You feel so ashamed of yourself. Similarly, when you find your set is oscillating, you should feel ashamed. Remember the story of the cherry stones. Now, to the malicious, I have nothing to say. I cannot understand anyone being of that state of mind. And that's almost all I have to say tonight. To sum up, let me say to the careless, if the note varies while you are tuning, you are oscillating. Stop it. To the careless, remember the story of the cherry stones. To the malicious, silence. Now, an old Ritalite has written to me, asking me to finish that little parody of mine, of Shakespeare's Mistress Mine, Where Are You Roaming? Uh, this is it. O oh, Hetrodyne, why are you moaning? Oh, how you spoil our telephoning that we send out from 2LO. But no, let me sing it here. Hold this, old man. And then Eckersley was heard once again on the piano. Singing terribly. Well, that's all, CQ. Good night. Sorry you've been troubled. Good night, CQ. Good night. So that's Peter Eckersley there, giving an important message through the medium of humour. Also on the air that day was the first warning to alter your clocks for British summertime. Well, yes, what a good public service broadcasting could be. But on the front page of the Express that very day, they foresaw a future without such beebness. Freedom and progress, end of vain dreams of monopoly, was their headline. So Reith spent the next few days speaking to various newspaper editors on an educational mission to explain the facts of broadcasting. He visited the General Post Office as well to work out from the Postmaster General what this inquiry into the BBC may look like. And can he be on the panel, please? Yes, Reith was pleading that he should be there in the room as they decided the BBC's future. April the 23rd, a couple of days later, uh, that had a Shakespeare's birthday broadcast, which we will put a pin in and return to next episode. We'll instead skip to the day after that for now, because it was time for an update in the House of Commons. So, forget Shakespeare. We need the podcast parliamentary players, because it's Tuesday the 24th of April 1923. You know, it was around this time that Reith and Eckersley actually sought permission to broadcast Parliament. They wanted to use a microphone pushed around the Commons floor on a small trolley. Yeah, they were turned down, and that didn't happen. But here is what did happen. Captain Ben. May I ask the Postmaster General whether he proposes to issue a third type of licence for users of wireless sets? And does he propose to continue the prohibition of the import of wireless apparatus? The Postmaster General. Well, as explained in the statement I made on the 20th instant, I propose to refer the whole question to a committee. The importation of wireless apparatus is not at present prohibited, but the provision that apparatus used under the broadcast receiving licence must be marked with the British Broadcasting Company's trademark prevents the use of imported apparatus for ordinary broadcast reception, as distinct from experimental purposes. There is no similar provision in respect of apparatus used under the experimental licences. Captain Barclay. Would the Postmaster General say, in view of the provisions of Standing Order 72 of this House, 
Will he notify the British Broadcasting Company that their licence is not binding until approved by resolution of this House? And will he take steps to bring the licence before the House without delay, with a view to a resolution being taken upon it? The suggestion was made that the BBC's licence was not binding. Could the Beeb be dismantled due to an administrative error? Well, the Postmaster General replied in a new voice, because, again, there were so many keen voice actors a hundred years later. The licence granted to the British Broadcasting Company is not a contract for the purpose of telegraphic communication beyond sea, and does not, in my view, therefore fall within the scope of the standing order referred to by the Honourable Member. Few. Much as the Postmaster General disagreed with Wreath, he was not about to throw the baby out with the bathwater, or the baby sea out with the wreath water. But there in the Commons, Captain Barclay was not giving up yet. In view of the great public importance of the issues involved by this licence, will not the Honourable Gentleman consider referring it for the opinion of the House, to the House of Commons, before it is dealt with by the committee, which he has promised to set up to consider the whole question. I think that it would be inadvisable to deal with this matter before the committee, which is being set up today, has considered the points raised by the Honourable Gentleman. In view of the answer, I beg to give notice, sir, that tomorrow, after questions, I shall ask your ruling as to whether the contract with the British Broadcasting Company comes within Standing Order 72, which requires certain contracts for the purpose of telegraphic communication to be approved by resolution of this House before they are binding. Mr J. Jones! Is the Honourable Gentleman aware that his predecessor has been elected a director of the Marconi Company, one of the principal companies connected with the British Broadcasting Company? And is that going to be allowed to continue? That'll be Francis Calloway. Controversial. That does not arise out of the question. Would the Postmaster General state to the House the terms of reference which he proposes for the Committee on Broadcasting Licences? And further, can he give the names of the committee? The Postmaster General replied, giving, for the first time, the scope of this first inquiry into the BBC. And once again, William Johnson Hicks had a brand new voice. The terms of reference which I propose are as follows. To consider A, broadcasting in all its aspects, B, the contracts and licences which have been or may be granted, C, the action which should be taken upon the determination of the existing licence of the broadcasting company, D, uses to which broadcasting may be put, and E, the restrictions which may need to be placed upon its user or development. And then, sounding different for a seventh time due to volunteers to voice him, the Postmaster General gave the names of those who would do the inquiring. The members of the committee which I have nominated are Major General Sir Frederick Sykes MP as Chairman, Major the Honourable J.J. Astor MP, Mr. F.J. Brown, CBCBE, Assistant Secretary, General Post Office. Mr. Brown was really on the side of the broadcasters, I like to think. He was one of those who went over to America to do some test runs to see what the Americans did for radio before the BBC even came into being. So he was thoughtful, considerate, and would do the right thing, surely. Sir Henry Bunbury, KCB, Controller and Accountant General, General Post Office. Viscount Burnham, CH, Chairman... Newspaper Proprietors Association. Ah, representative from the press there. W.H. Eccles, Esquire, F.R.S., President, Radio Society of Great Britain. The Radio Society of Great Britain, then, this is more looking out for the experimenters than the radio hams. The Right Honourable Sir Henry Norman, MP. Ah, now of all the MPs, he's probably the one who loved listening to radio the most. He was an early adopter and behind broadcasting from the beginning. J.C.W. Reef, Esquire, General Manager, British Broadcasting Company. Yes, Reef muscled his way onto the inquiry panel. Field Marshal Sir William Robertson, GCB. 
GCNG, KCVO, DSO, and Charles Trevelyan, Esquire, MP. That's the grandfather of the ex-BBC news anchor Laura Trevelyan, who left the BBC only recently to work on a campaign for reparative justice. Mr Pringle! Back to the Commons, where the debate was wrapping up. Has the right honourable member for Blackburn, Sir Henry Norman, been appointed in view of the evidence which he gave before a select committee of this House in regards to wireless? The Postmaster General. I ask the right honourable member to serve on this committee because of his very great knowledge of the whole of this wireless question. Sir Douglas Newton. Who will represent the 250,000 listeners in? There are four members of this House, all of whom, I take it, appear in a representative capacity for large constituencies. Field Marshal Sir William Robertson is not connected with any organisation interested in broadcasting. In fact, everybody on the committee is more or less a representative of the listeners in. In view of the fact that legal questions arise in relation to the determination of the contract, Will the right honourable gentleman put on the committee somebody who is competent to deal with the legal issues? (laughs) (laughs) The Postmaster General. I considered that matter very carefully and came to the conclusion that, if a legal member were put on the committee, he would probably put a one-sided legal view of the matter. The committee will be at full liberty to obtain the legal advice of the law officers of the Crown and the solicitor to the post office. Mr Pringle. Are we to understand that it is the considered view of the Postmaster General, as a solicitor, that a lay tribunal is the best body to pronounce an opinion on a legal question? Mr J Jones! May I ask why the great majority of listeners in, who are working people, have not proper representation upon this committee? We are not lawyers. And then the questions moved on to delayed Cornish postal delivery and halfpenny postcards. Surely what the Postmaster General thought he'd be in charge of when he signed up to the uh, post instead of all this broadcasting malarkey. But that was that then. The Sykes inquiry was set underway. Ten members, including all of the P's, Parliament, Press, Post Office and Broadcaster. Yes, John Reith was on the panel. And actually, although the Postmaster General had been quite combative in the run-up to this, he's picked a line-up there who are mostly behind broadcasting, or at least one to be very considerate and careful about its future. This inquiry had 34 meetings between then and August the 17th, 1923, with 32 witnesses examined. They reported back to the Postmaster General in late August, and we will return to find out what they decided when we reach that point in about a dozen episodes' time here on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. I will tell you, though, that by then there were 200,000 unlicensed radio sets. There were almost no radio sets being sold by the wireless trade that summer. Potential buyers either waited to see if there would be a BBC to listen to, or they made their own wireless sets in the meantime. And without spoiling the inquiry's findings, I will say that it backed Reith so much that he was rewarded with a promotion from general manager to managing director of the BBC. So there you go. That's a two-parter really here on the podcast. The press versus the BBC versus the government pretty much wrapped up. What a fortnight that was. The make or break of the BBC, I like to think. And we could sum it up, I think, with this from Wireless Weekly, the day after that Commons debate. April 25th, 1923. This summed up how the Daily Express's anti-BBC campaign had not 
quite worked. The Daily Express particularly became excited, but like many other papers which have attempted to discuss technical problems, they failed to realise the impression they would make on those of their readers who knew the whole situation. In wireless, particularly, it has become necessary for specialists to deal with specialist problems. Yeah, or committees. Either way, maybe we can learn from that that actually, rather than being led by headlines in tabloids about the BBC's future, we should look into the details ourselves, engage with them, understand the problems at the BBC, and work on how it can be made better without trying to destroy it. Next time on the podcast, Dr Andrea Smith on Shakespeare's birthday broadcast in 1923, and Professor Tim Crook on the forgotten pioneer of radio drama a little earlier, actually, in December 1922. We glossed over Phyllis Twig at the time, but now delighted to shine the spotlight on her properly next episode. We also speak to Phyllis Twig's grandson, Peter Grimaldi. This may be our most vital episode yet, I think, the truth about Phyllis Twig. Don't miss it next time. Subscribe where you get podcasts, rate and review us there too, if you would. Five stars would be marvellous. Remember, we are a one-man operation. We are not made by the BBC or by anybody else. It's just me, Paul Carenza. So any help you can give, a review, a recommendation to somebody, a chip-in on patreon.com slash paulcarenza, or just tell me that you're listening. In fact, today, this very day, I bumped into a certain very excellent BBC local radio presenter who said that he's been listening. Hello to you, James Cannon. Um, oh, and while I'm thanking people... I thank as well a marvellous woman called Marida. I hope I pronounced that correctly. She got in touch on the email. Uh, her late mother kept a beautiful old copy of the Radio Times 1938 Christmas edition in a wonderful old Radio Times binder. And Marida wanted it to go to a nice home. Delighted to see it. Delighted to see it in such a lovely condition as well. If you'd like to see a picture of it, I'll pop it on our social media on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow us there. I'll link to that in the show notes. A final thank you, of course, though. Take a bow our podcast parliamentary players you have been listening to neil jackson alexander perkins lou sutcliffe david monteith sean jacks gordon bathgate stephen smallwood paul hayes faye roberts jamie medhurst tom chivers carol carman and andrew barker thank you for bringing to life 1923's parliamentary proceedings and we shall see how it proceeds from here the British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced solely by me, Paul Grenza, and listened to, perhaps solely, by you. But no, hopefully others as well. Original music is by Will Farmer, and this episode contains parliamentary information licensed under the Open Parliament Licence version 3.0. Thank you, Hansard. Stay informed, educated, and entertained, and join us next time for drama, the very first drama, at the other end of this British Broadcasting Century.